Welcome to Out in the Bay, Queer Radio from San Francisco. I'm Eric Jansen. This week, Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing. Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing is the title of a collection of essays by our guest this week, best-selling author Lauren Huff. Huff's parents were members of the infamous apocalyptic Christian sex cult, The Children of God, later called The Family. And Huff spent her childhood moving around the world and navigating the cult's ever-changing rules and expectations. After leaving the family, Huff joined the Air Force, where she faced homophobia, death threats, and violence. For a while later, she was homeless, living in her car in Washington, D.C., was incarcerated briefly, and worked as a bouncer, a barista, a bartender, and a cable guy, just a few of her many identities before becoming a writer. Although Huff claims that she is better at lying than at telling the truth early in the book, the book has brutally honest tales from her life and contains searing social commentary on many issues plaguing the United States. Poverty, racism, classism, homophobia, violence, and depression, to name just a few. Yet, leaving isn't the hardest thing, has humor and wit, too. Even in some of her essay's darkest moments, Huff's readers find levity. The collection has been described as heartbreaking, revealing, and honest by Alana Massad of NPR, and powerful as it is poignant by Roxanne Gay, author of Difficult Women. Huff's 2018 essay, I Was a Cable Guy, I Saw the Worst of America, was published by HuffPost and went viral, setting the stage for this book. Her work can also be found in Granta, The Wrath-Bearing Tree, and The Guardian. She lives in Austin, Texas. Welcome, Lauren Huff. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for being here with us on Out in the Bay. Would you like to start with the reading? Uh, sure, definitely. You'd think I'd be better at this since I read part of the audiobook, but we'll see how it goes. if you ask me where i'm from i'll lie to you i'll tell you my parents were missionaries i'll tell you i'm from boston i'll tell you i'm from texas those lies people believe i'm better at lying than i am at telling the truth because the lies don't make me nervous it's the truth the thought of telling it that triggers my awkward laugh and my sweaty palms makes me not want to look you in the eye i know i won't like what i'll see When Sheriff Horton moseyed up to the front porch past my car smoldering in the driveway, I figured I should stick as close to the truth as possible. I'd been watching him talk to the fireman out on the lawn, but with the rain coming down in sheets, I couldn't make out but a few words. I was sitting on the steps drying my hair with a towel. didn't take much to dry it. I chopped most of my hair that summer when South Carolina air hit 100 degrees with 100% humidity, and walking outside was like opening a dishwasher mid-cycle and climbing in. Sheriff Horton took his hat off, beat it against his thigh to shake off the water. I stood and realized he was shorter than me. I stepped back. I'm six feet tall, and guys don't like feeling short. I offered him my hand, which he took in his own meat and grip. Looks like arson, he said, and stared at me like I was supposed to respond with something more than no crap. So I said, yeah, I can smell the gas. I mimicked his accent. Sometimes the mimicry is intentional. The way someone talks is the fastest way to tell someone isn't like you. Come back from years overseas to a place like Amarillo, Texas, for example, and you'll learn that accent real fast. South Carolina isn't much different. If you don't sound like them, people start asking you questions like, where are you from? After a while, you mimic without even thinking about it. It's safer when people don't think you're different. I read a Marlboro, something to do with my hands, because I knew better than to put them in my pockets. Southern rules follow military rules. You don't talk to an authority figure with your hand in your pockets. 
I offered him a cigarette, and he asked if I thought that was a good idea, nodded over to where my car sat, still steaming. The firemen were packing up their hoses, shouting and joking on the lawn. I said I doubted there was much risk of combusting. He asked if maybe we should go inside. I raised my cigarette like that was the reason we would not be going inside. He raised his eyebrows like that wasn't a good reason. I told him it wasn't my house, I couldn't give permission, because I thought that seemed reasonable. I don't know what he expected to find. He asked if I knew who'd done it. I said it was probably the same person who'd been leaving me death threats. He pulled out his notepad and asked for names. I told him I didn't have any. And he asked with a smirk on his face why someone would threaten me. But he already knew. That's great. Thank you. It's already got a hint, uh, which comes later, like, he's suspecting you already, I guess. Or do you think it was just a whole setup? Yeah, I think so. He was very in love with his own detective skills. Um, yeah, up on the stand, he kept saying, I just wasn't acting right. I wasn't acting the way a victim should act. And when you say on the witness stand, you mean you got court-martialed later because the Air Force basically accused you or suspected you of setting fire to your own car, right? Yeah, um, the reasoning being that I, I did it to avoid being transferred to Greece because... I mean, who wouldn't want to stay in South Carolina and avoid going to Greece? So, <laughs> I don't really know or understand all the whys of what happened. Um, it just seemed like there was the easiest way for the Air Force to get past what happened was to accuse me of doing it and pretend they didn't have a problem with gays being harassed on base. And were they aware that you had been harassed before that? No, that was the... That was the problem with Don't Ask, Don't Tell, or one of the many problems with Don't Ask, Don't Tell. If you went to your supervisor or the police on base and told them you were being harassed for being gay or receiving death threats or anything like that, you were basically admitting to being gay, and they would investigate you and not whoever was threatening you. Right. Or that was the, the fear that we all lived with. And so he says that when he says at the end here that, you know, he asked with a smirk why someone would threaten me, but he already knew. So he already kind of suspected or knew you were a dyke, as you say, as you call yourself. And uh, he didn't have to. And you couldn't tell him because if you told him that would spur an investigation on you, which you ended up having anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't play that one out well. It doesn't sound like you had any option to play it out well. It's definitely not (laughs) Not your fault. (laughs) My call sign at the time was duck because my super thought it, supervisor a different guy thought it was very funny um that people would ask him if i was gay and he always just thought it was the dumbest question like looks like a dyke walks like a dyke so my call sign at the office was duck and nobody knew why it was kind of an inside joke but i mean some of us just can't hide it well we try real hard <laughs> but we quit trying let me ask you a little bit about growing up in the children of god cult um Obviously, I think we can say it's unusual, for lack of a better word. But at what point did you realize that your experiences were different from those of most kids? Or or were there particular aspects of your life in the cult that felt strange to you even as a child? Yeah, I think immediately. Um, the first time we, we came back to Amarillo and we'd hang out with our cousins who, you know, lived basically normal average suburban lives and so we knew we were different and there were a lot of things we were always not allowed to talk about with them but uh in the cult i 
my problem was that I'd been out of it. We left for a little while when I was seven and stayed out until I was nine. So I had that normal American childhood, um, you know, in Oklahoma and Texas in 1985. But the cult's practices, the cult's teaching, the way we lived always struck me as very different and not always right. I, I had a really hard time believing all of their doctrine and all it takes is a fourth grade knowledge of you know, science or dinosaurs to know a lot of it's crap. To what extent did you have an education in the cult or in the family that was, you know, that exposed you to things like dinosaurs, for example? I mean, did you have access to an education that let you know that this is not normal? No, none whatsoever. I mean, that's the secret of a cult is you control the information. So yeah, we had we had access to nothing. I was overeducated for a cult baby with my fourth grade biology class and a couple books I'd read. All of our training, all of our teaching, all of our education, what little it was, came from cult doctrine. They had their own educational materials, math books, reading books, everything, and it was all very basic. And then you were once you learned to read and write, that that's all you needed to know. You traveled around, I think at the beginning of the book, it says you were born in Germany, raised in seven different countries and several various states. Why did you move a lot? And you had to change, and change your name a few times, right? Your name was changed for you, I guess. What's, what was that about? The moving was basically the way the cult operated. It was a very, very nomadic cult. They didn't want you in any country for too long. They didn't want you in any home for too long. And it was a control thing. You could make friends and allies and, you know, homes would sometimes go against the leader and everyone would get excommunicated or sent off to different homes. So they didn't want anybody building really close friendships. So we moved a lot. And then part of it was the biblical idea of go out and preach the gospel to every creature. But it's funny, we always ended up in countries where we could make a lot of money, Switzerland and Japan. And our, I mean proselytizing methods. We were just handing out posters on the streets to whoever would give us money. The name changing, they did it when you joined. You were supposed to take a Bible name. And then later on, they would do it whenever you had a problem that you were supposed to get the victory over. And the one I mentioned in the book is a friend who's named Victory because she had asthma. And that was going to cure her asthma. So she would get the victory over it. I was Mary at one time, M-A-R-Y, and then they changed it to M-E-R-R-Y because I wasn't happy enough. You touch on that several times, is that you didn't smile enough, you didn't laugh enough. Actually, even at the end of the book, by the way, in your acknowledgments, you mentioned that your agent kept telling you to make it funnier. (laughs) (laughs) At no point did I want this to be trauma porn. I mean, it might be a dirty trick of, you know, here's a book of cult stories, and there really aren't many cult stories in it at all. I didn't want to just write a book that was just listing things that happened. I wanted to say something with it. I mean, I'm generally a happy person. I just don't wear it on my face all the time. So tell us a little bit. I understand there was a lot of rules in this cult. They were written, unwritten. I guess they changed a lot. Uh, People were punished for breaking them. Can you talk about any of the rules you broke and what your punishments were? (laughs) The rules I broke... God, they were constant. I, I broke every possible rule. You could break a rule by taking too much toilet paper. You break a rule by telling a joke. I I was angry one time or frustrated because I lost my passport. I don't even remember what I said, but I said something in anger, and it sure as hell wasn't a swear word because we didn't use those. But, uh, yeah, I got put on silence restriction for a month because I couldn't find my passport. Silence? 
Yeah, we weren't allowed to talk. That was a popular punishment for a while. That must be really tough, for, especially for a kid. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was near impossible. We were all pretty good at the hand alphabet. I mean, you could get in trouble for anything. Um, they would just randomly pop in, and I'd worn pants too many times that week, and so I had to wear skirts for a month. Like, even when we were going out to play, which just annoyed the crap out of me, because you can't climb trees in a skirt. But, yeah, they were constantly on me for, for being a little dyke. I, they didn't call it that, but they prayed against my homosexual spirit a whole lot. So, uh, if I understand, your parents joined this cult, or at least your dad, because he wanted to avoid the draft, right? So he was uh, a pacifist, or is a pacifist, I guess, on some level. And then you ended up, you joined the Air Force as soon as you could, right? As soon as you turned 18? Yeah, I don't know how much of that I did to hurt him. Um, I think a little bit. Yeah, he was, he was, and the cult itself was very anti-American military, so it was probably a combination of the two. And then just to get out of Amarillo. I had complicated reasons, I think, like anyone does for joining the military. I don't know really anyone who joined for patriotism or wanting to serve. Maybe if it, they had joined during wartime, that might have been a reason. But most of us were just joining to, you know, we bought the commercials we were sold of the, you know, this is the way out. This is the way out of your crappy hometown. Well, for so many people, if you don't have, uh, you know, any other options, that's, I guess that's the default, you know, join the military, yeah. maybe you'll get a career. You think you won't be just pushing brooms somewhere. But um, yeah. that's you ended up pushing brooms because you got discharged uh, for being a homosexual, homosexual admission. I did. Right? I am an admitted homosexual, according to my discharge paperwork, which I'm. It's weird. It's one of those things that I tried to hide for a long time, applying for jobs, and now I'll probably frame it at some point. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I ended up working in bars and worked a lot of odd jobs. You're hearing Out in the Bay, Queer Radio from San Francisco. I'm Eric Jansen speaking with Lauren Huff, best-selling author of the new essay collection, Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing. We are an independent production. That means we receive no funds from the radio stations that air Out in the Bay weekly, nor from podcast platforms. Your gift will help keep LGBTQ voices and stories coming to you and to others who might not be able to give. Just hit the Donate tab on our website, outinthebay.org. Thank you. So let's talk about the book's title for a minute. Also, that's, that's also the name of one of your essays in it. Leaving isn't the hardest thing. So what is or was the hardest thing? Uh, I'm not sure. I just know that leaving wasn't. Um, uh, probably the hardest thing was finding who I was without all of that on my own. Um, you're trained to be part of something and that you only matter as part of something. And that's Christianity. That's a cult. That's the Air Force. That's even some of the jobs you do. They try to force that identity on you. Finding my own identity is probably the really hard part. So there is a place in the book, in the essays, where you compare, I think a few times, you compare your experience in this in a cult with being in the Air Force and with the Republican Party and QAnon and even with identifying as an, as an American. And perhaps even, even as being, um, you know, at this cable company where they wanted everybody to be like part of the team and be congratulated for working 10 years without taking a day of vacation. What do you see in these groups that remind you of one another? For me, it's the group think. The famous American love it or leave it from the 60s ties into it. You see it a lot. We'll go through waves of patriotism where you see American flags flying everywhere. 
and support our troops on a bumper sticker on every car. And we believe in American exceptionalism. And it's sold to us and taught to us the same way a cult is. Our entire history is a complete lie. And our forefathers are made into these saints who didn't own slaves and pull their teeth for their own dentures. We don't acknowledge any shortcomings of our founding fathers. And if you do, I mean, you have Texas banning critical race theory. We can't talk about any of it. We will pass laws to make sure that you don't acknowledge that maybe we have some flaws. There's definitely a cult-like aspect to being an American. There's a part uh, where you talk about, I think this is in the, uh, the essay called Badlands, where you're working at this point at a gay bar. I guess you haven't been there too long, but one of the older bartenders there is offering food from her car, like bread that's past its expiration date. And it starts this thing. You have this feeling about, should I take this bread or not? I'm, I'm tired of being looking like I'm poor and ashamed of it. And previous to that, you'd been living in your car for a while, but finally you've got a place to live. But you say something about there's like this, an entire society of people who don't have checking accounts and restaurants pour bleach on garbage bags and how that, all that stuff just makes you sick. Yeah, we were seeing it everywhere. In Austin, they're banning homeless people from camping. Well, what are you supposed to do if you don't have a home in this country? It's it's in our homeless, anti-homeless architecture, those park benches that you can't sit on or you can't lie on. Every railing with the spikes on it so that people can't sit and hang out. There's an entire industry behind making sure we don't see homeless people. It doesn't help homeless people. It doesn't put them into homes. It doesn't give them any sort of work. It just makes sure we don't see them in our neighborhoods. And it's vile. And it makes them as as uncomfortable as possible. Yeah, and that just makes it more difficult to get out. You also mentioned in this essay that this is somehow through this experience at the Badlands, you started to find your own voice. What happened to help that start happening? A lot of it had to do with my manager who kind of came along at the right time. It was one of those, I think it's one of the great things about the queer community is that you can find those pseudo family that, you know, he was like a big brother to me and looked out for me. And yeah, he was my boss and fired me a couple times and always gave me my job back a couple days later. But if if I needed something, I could go to him. If I I could tell him to F off, I could bring in the, uh, the instructions for tampons one time just to horrify him because he kept making a weird finger motion when he talked about tampons. So I made him read the whole thing aloud. There was nothing I could say, and I realized it pretty quick, that there was nothing I could say around him that would get me in trouble. Nothing. There are a lot of jobs I've worked since where you can't talk crap about the company, but we could talk as much crap as we wanted about the boss, about the job, about the bar itself, about the customers. He did not care. He would just laugh along with us. He was one of us versus like my boss who works for the company. So what made you decide to start writing all of this down, all of, the, all of your experiences, and, and I don't know, become a writer? <laughs> Had you been writing for a long time, and you finally decided, like, well, there's this part where you talk about just being, like, somehow one of your old friends from the family from way back when visits you, and you talk about what how you've become, you know, you've become, I don't know, productive citizens or whatever. Yeah. And you're like, you had this awakening, like, this is not what I want. I don't need these things. I don't need consumerism. And you decide to sell your house and, I guess, um, 
leave and get into Winnebago and drive across the country. Um, tell us about that. What what happened that started like? What was the change there? <laughs> a midlife crisis. Um, I don't know. I you're I, too uh, young for a midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was miserable, and no matter what I did to change it, I was miserable. And you know, you can only go so long changing little things and until you realize you just have to dump the whole system out and start again. And that's where I was in life is I'd finally you know, checked a few of the right boxes. I had a house, I had you know the girlfriend, the dog, the car, the job, and I I didn't want to wake up in the morning. So yeah, I'd been writing forever and the only time I really felt good was when I was writing. I only started sounding like me when I started writing these stories. I think I had to tell them, or I believed, and I still believe I had to write those out, or I was never going to be able to write anything else. More of a compulsion than a choice. Do you have another section you'd like to read? All right, sure. This is Jay and I finding our room. Just to set this up, so this is a guy you met shortly after you left or got kicked out of whichever way you want to look at it, the military uh, you met this guy at a gay bar in um, South Carolina, and you decided to go to Washington, D.C. because you thought you'd have a better life there, right? Yeah. Those first nights after we secured the room at Carl's, I slept like I'd been awake for months. All I cared about was that we had a roof and a door and a bathroom. I wouldn't come home and find my home, and the last few things I owned towed to a lot where I could never afford to buy their freedom. I had a home. It was hard at first to focus on anything but that relief. You can't share a twin bed past the age of 10 unless you're related or screwing. Jay's an aggressive cuddler. I'm an unrepentant snorer. There wasn't even room to build a pillow wall between us. So after a few sleepless nights of his telling me to roll over, and my trying to shove him just hard enough to get him away from me without throwing him onto the floor and, and slapping at his legs because I thought his hair was a mosquito, we headed to Walmart. The cheapest air mattress was 1999. But in what we thought was a stroke of genius, we found a $5 inflatable pool raft in the clearance section of sporting goods. It's probably a good thing we bought it. Anyone hoping to stay afloat in a pool would have drowned. Since Jay usually got home from the bar first, I ended up on the raft. We'd listen to the Top 40 station with the relentlessly cheerful DJ who'd read off of the weather report and traffic fatalities with the same upbeat giggling voice she used to gush about Britney Spears and Justin's perfect romance and how they'd have the most adorable babies. When Jay fell asleep, I'd shut it off and listen to my raft deflate, unless he brought someone home, which was often. After the night Jay's shockingly hairy ass landed on my face, I learned to sleep with my head to the door. It only took a couple weeks to start missing the solitude of living in my car. Not enough that I wanted to live in a car again, but enough that I started taking the long way home. What do you most want readers to get out of this book? I think what I've always wanted people to understand, I think sometimes that the book may just be an answer to all of the shocked looks that you get when you tell someone your past isn't exactly like theirs. I was talking today, my brother used to work at United Supermarket Bag and Groceries with this kid. They hung out all the time. They were pretty good friends. Later on, he saw him on TV, and it's Chris Owens is a musician and also grew up in the family, and they never discussed it. Not once. Because we were raised to be so ashamed of our past that we never discussed them. But it turns out when you, when you do open up and when you do talk about it, 
everyone's got that thing. I was so scared of the judgment of everyone from my friends, people I worked with, everything. And you just you just don't get that. Everyone can find a way to relate to it. And it's really kind of amazing. Yeah, it's like coming out of the closet. It turns out you get to have honest relationships once you do that. You may lose a few, but the ones you keep are true now. That's right. That's beautiful. I mean, I think it's your background may be seem more extreme than others, but we all have something in our past or something that we feel we judge ourselves. Yeah. And uh, so, and we assume that other people do too. And so we, we hide parts of ourselves. Yeah, it's just a very limiting thing. What do you want to now? Are, there, are you working on other projects now or taking a little break while you do this uh, virtual book tour? Or are you doing a virtual book tour? Uh, I, keep, I keep telling my agents I'm working on something else, but I'm not. I'm still thinking about it. Um, should, should I delete that part? That's <laughs> bad. They know. They, they know I'm foolish. We've worked together a long time. Yeah, I'm still in the staring of the wall stage. I got, I got tired of everything being on my phone, and I was in the midst of maybe a month-long panic attack about the book coming out. And I started driving around signing books at bookstores because at least that felt real. Felt like a real writer. (laughs) (laughs) I went down to D.C. last weekend, and it was great. There's a bookstore called Kramer's, and I used to shop there, but also it was a great place to use the bathroom when I lived in my car because their bathroom was upstairs, not on the main floor. So, you know, if you were maybe washing your hair in in the bathroom sink, people didn't really notice it in the main store. They didn't notice how long you'd been in there. And they had a pile of my books, and I signed them in the store where I used to kind of take a shower when I lived in my car. That's amazing. That must have been a freaky feeling. Yeah, I I had to go over to DuPont and just sit there for a while in the circle watching these old guys play chess. It was a profound experience. So I'm probably going to do some more of that. At the very beginning of your book, the first, like the first page when I opened it, I noticed that you had a dedication to your to your um, grandmothers. Yeah. And um, I was curious, you know, why? Or it says for my grandmothers, Nell and Barbara. Yeah, for two old women from Texas, they they were the two probably in my family who accepted me the most. Neither gave a crap that I was gay. They both thought it was kind of funny and hoped my stepdad knew. That was. That was the question my grandma asked when I came out to her. She's like, well, does, does Gabe know? She just wanted it to piss him off. <laughs> <laughs> she hated him. They both hated him. Yeah, they, they, they sent me books when I was a kid. And in the family, like, outside books weren't allowed at all. But when you send a little 12-year-old lesbian white fang, she's going to keep it under her mattress and read it no matter how much trouble she's risking. White fang, what's that about? It's about a guy who tames a wolf up in Alaska. So, you know, adventures and wolves. Too butch for a girl in the family? Yeah, way too butch. <laughs> they sent us everything. We really wouldn't have survived if it weren't for them. And how's your how's your relationship with your other rest of your family at this point? Your you know, your parents and your siblings? I thought I would get a lot more pushback from them. They're all really supportive. It's kind of great. I think they're mostly happy that they don't have to save up bail money anymore for the next time Lauren gets in trouble. <laughs> okay, I want to thank you very much. Where can people find your book or find out about your uh, if you're doing events and things like that? I have a, a website. It's uh, laurenhuffauthor.com or Twitter is probably where I'm most active at Lauren the Huff. 
Lauren the Huff and laurenhuffauthor.com. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Out in the Bay. My guest this half hour was Lauren Huff, author of the new collection of essays, Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing. To learn more about her, check our website, outinthebay.org. In our post about this week's show, we'll include links about Lauren and her writings. That's outinthebay.org, where you can hear this show and past shows and share them with friends. Please do. You can also sign up there for our occasional email newsletter so you won't miss an episode and subscribe to Out in the Bay podcasts. You might also make a donation there to help us keep bringing queer air to your ears. We are an independent production. Your gift will help keep LGBTQ voices and stories coming to you and to others who might not be able to give. Just hit the donate tab on our website, outinthebay.org. That's outinthebay.org. Thank you. Our theme music was written by Holly Mead. Thanks to Holly and thanks to KLW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area, and to San Francisco Public Press and its radio station, KSFP 102.5 FM. And to my co-producers, Kendra Klang, Porphyria Wrangle, and Truk Wynn. Want to join our team? Email us at outinthebaysf at gmail.com. Send comments there too, please. We'd love to read your thoughts. That's outinthebaysf at gmail.com. I'm Eric Jansen. Thanks for listening and thanks for joining us out in the bay. Thank you.